Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. So I think I probably speak for a lot of people in saying that I found this year utterly exhausting. And the last thing we want to do um, on this podcast is relive that because I don't want to relive it and I don't think anybody else does either. But I think that there's probably some important lessons that we can learn about what happened during the year, what that says about journalism and what that could sort of guide us towards as we move forward. So we're not going to go through every news story, but we are going to look at this year sort of thematically. Um, thankfully, I'm not going to do this by myself. Um, I'm lucky to be joined today by CJR's Delacorte Fellows, who um, are here for a year to help do everything that we do at CJR, and we're incredibly grateful to have them, and they're going to help walk us through this. So what we've done is we've sort of divided the year up by, um, by months, um, and everybody's sort of taken a look at what transpired um, during set parts of the year and what sort of emerged. Let's start with the first of the year. So th- we're talking almost a year ago now. Um, I'm amazed to read that the shitty media men list, which has been so dominating our discussion for the last year, is wasn't basically was only the 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 writer of it was only outed less than a year ago. Zainab Sultan's here to talk to us about that. How are you? I'm okay, thanks, Kyle. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's, it's if you look back and with the amounts of things that have happened in the past year, it's only been literally a year, less than a year, if I may say, because we still have a few more days to wrap this year, um, that, you know, Moira uh, Donegan came out and wrote this, that piece in the cut and sort of... That was in January. That was in January, where she revealed her identity after those tweets that came out with Harper's Magazine possibly outing her. So, um, I mean, I said that this that this theme of um, sexual harassment in media, in Hollywood, in politics everywhere has become very dominant this year. Um, how do you think about the coverage of this? I think, first of all, like we had the past year, 2017, reading a lot of coverage about sexual harassment in in Hollywood and other industries. And then we saw that sort of wave come into our own industry and how we've sort of handled it. I think, fa- firstly, it was great to see that we were having a discussion about uh, sexual harassment in newsrooms and it was being publicly scrutinized. Uh, as most young reporters, when you walk in, you don't you're really unsure of what's, you know, socially acceptable. I mean, I we we at CJR did a oral history um, project where we asked women who had been targeted um, um, with sexual harassment in newsrooms. This was right after the Weinstein story broke, and we asked people to sort of tell us their stories because there had been this kind of uh, narrative that had taken hold that that one that this involved um, men who were older and that there was a kind of generational difference between. Mm-hmm people in their 50s and 60s and younger men, that it involved primarily um, legacy media people that digital media wasn't so guilty. And anyway, what we what we learned after publishing this thing is that all those assumptions were wrong, that this is one that's still going on now, that the age wasn't such a distinction, that the, that the, right. the places where you work weren't such a distinction. So... So we've learned a lot. A lot of people have been able to tell their stories. A lot of people who are doing very bad things are gone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got to say, I'm a little dubious about w- how much the 
the culture of a lot of these places has really changed or do you are you too yeah i think that's right like it's hard to really tell like to understand what the real impact would be of this whole movement per se and it will take us some more time to really be able to see you know what this leads us to and what changes it may end up happening within newsrooms culturally because it's not dependent on one person or it cannot happen overnight based on one story but it's going to be it go, it's going to mean that newsroom leaders actually come together and analyze things so i'm also joined here by um andrew mccormick and amanda darish who are also cgr fellows feel free to join the conversation on the me too and, and the legacy of me too what do you think um other than like outing a lot of bad people which which was it was very effective at doing what else is what else do you think is the sort of lasting legacy of this of this moment for journalism so one of the cases that really stands out for me uh, this year was the case of uh, Jack Smith at Mike. Uh, there was a piece in Jezebel that was published that was called The Next Step for Me Too is Into the Gray Areas. And this was a discussion about kind of toxic male behavior in the dating world. Uh, and this was about uh, a journalist who had really kind of become a star uh, through video platform and through writing on Mike. And the discussion about him was that he had kind of often targeted or certainly not preyed upon in the way that others in the Me Too uh, movement are discussed as doing, but had not treated women uh, in his life particularly well. Uh, And this had created kind of a strange uh, environment within his workplace uh, and within just the kind of broader journalism community. Uh, I think that uh, the, the essay on Jezebel is certainly worth a read. Um, but the kind of takeaway from it is that this isn't, as Kyle said, just about media executives. It isn't mm-hmm. just about extreme behavior. Uh, it's about across industries, certainly in the journalism world, um, at a very basic level about how men are treating women, how uh, people have been kind of elevated to places that allow them to uh, assume a certain level of behavior. So here's a, here's a question. Um, how much I mean why is why did this come out now because there has been the argument made that because this has obviously been going on for decades and decades um, there has been the argument made that having Donald Trump in the White House and having him um, basically ignore complaints ab- about him including a audio tape of him bragging about um, yeah. uh, molesting women and 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 apparently him having no consequences uh, at That's least right. among his base, that 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 helped fuel the anger that led to this uh, this movement coming out now, as opposed to five years ago or five years into the future. Do you, Amanda? Do you have any thoughts about? Do you buy that argument? I mean, absolutely. I I do think that there's this feeling, this kind of dystopian uh, feeling that we've lost consequences and checks and balances in society in general. And Trump really illustrates that and um, has brought it to a head. But I also see, you know, some recent changes that show this is kind of seeping into the culture in a different way. For example, you know, at CBS, there's no longer a 120 million severance package going out because Les Boomvas didn't 
cooperate. So at the same time, he it's lied. Se- he lied to yeah. the investigators. So it's so he lied to the investigators. So it seems like slowly there are consequences. So let's move on um, to the threats against journalists, because that seems to be another theme that we've sort of dealt with all year. Um, and it's and it's happened both at the micro level where, you know, Trump has continued repeatedly week after week after week to um, to target journalists in his tweets to talk about how um, dishonest they are or whatever. Towards the end of the year, we had this situation where this guy um, mailed pipe bombs to CNN um, in addition to other people. Um, but the sort of low point um, of these threats came in June where um, you had a gunman go and shoot five people at the Capital Gazette newspaper in Annapolis. Um, and it's sort of, um, for me, it... it it really clarified that this is, you know, that this rhetoric um, is dangerous, and that, and that, that I think it's going to get worse. I think it's going to build steam. Um, and and at the end of the year, just a few, uh, this week, the Committee to Protect Journalists released their latest numbers for how many journalists have been killed around the world. And the U.S. I think is in the top three now of countries in the world um, where um, journalists have died doing their jobs. Um, Amanda, do you think, uh, one of the questions that I have is sort of how much this threat um, has sunk in to people who aren't working reporters and whether they care. And I think that, um, as we've been talking about in the office recently, you know, becoming anti-press and taking an anti-press stance has become a partisan issue, right? So, you know, this shooter had a longstanding grievance against the Capitol Gazette from a lawsuit, I think, in 2011. But before those details came to the surface, um, there was an assumption that this had been inspired by anti-media slurs from President Trump. And it's really disturbing that that was a, a reasonable uh, conclusion to draw early on. Um, and, by, and by the way, that distinction did not hold for the guy who mailed the pipe bombs to CNN. I mean, he was very, he had he had like anti-CNN stuff on the back of his kind of wackadoo van in Florida. That's right. Um, so there was a direct link um, mm-hmm. there. But it's good to point out that in this case, uh, this was an internal dispute with the Capital Gazette. But as you say, like, when we heard the news, it was it was not it didn't it didn't sort of register as an outlier event. It didn't at all. And um, even in late August, um, a 68 year old man was arrested. He'd been calling in, I think, 14 death threats to Boston Globe staff and saying the paper and the staff had committed treason and sedition against the president. So, you know, this is by no means a strange conclusion to draw. Mm. But the flip side of that is that it's become, to be anti-press has become partisan. Yeah. And it's part of being a Trump supporter now. Yeah. Well, and kind of following up on that point to the, to the, to the question of whether or not this resonates with or moves the general public, I unfortunately don't think that even these very visceral, um, deadly attacks on journalists have 
precipitated kind of a national reckoning where uh, the American public collectively has really taken stock of uh, is this rhetoric dangerous? Should this rhetoric be allowed to continue? Should there be accountability for government officials who continue with this rhetoric? I think we've had that conversation in the press, but I haven't heard that conversation echoed across the country or in communities, or I don't have the impression that that's it's, it's not my impression that that's really ongoing or else there would be discernible consequences. But I think that because, as Amanda says, this often falls into partisan categories, people are already kind of prepared to fall back on, it's a shame that these things have happened, but I continue to support the president. And also I would say this year in my reporting for CJR, I saw members of the press who happened to fall further to the right personally calling other members of the press fake news. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we, um, uh, that happened at Fox, right? Mm-hmm. Where, um, well, it happens at Fox every day where they use fake news and they have colleagues at, on Fox News who are reporters in the field who are doing their job. Um, you know, uh, I mean, and it is amazing. When I, I remember when, when Trump first started tweeting about the fact that the press is enemies or the, fa- the fact that, uh, I mean, it didn't, I think even one time, well, he, sa- he says that we're dishonest a lot. But I remember initially there, the the initial take was like, what a weird place for us to be where the president is attacking what is supposed to be a kind of institution that's protected in the very founding of the country and that, and that is supposed to be sort of part of what makes the checks and balances in America work. Um, he clearly has no – he clearly has disdain for that. Um, and what's been depressing to a lot of us is how m- a lot of the country shares his disdain. So what do you think it's going to take to turn that ship around? I really think that even though, of course, members of the press can continue to assert their importance as a institution in American life, um, I-, I do think that we need more leadership from more leadership from members of government uh, in kind of leading the charge, including on the right, and leading the charge against anti-press rhetoric. Um, Specifically in the wake of Khashoggi's death, uh, we've seen members of Republican members of Mm -hmm. Congress and Republican members of the Senate uh, explicitly censuring Saudi Arabia for his death and holding him accountable, which is something that Trump notably refuses to do or has refused. We didn't see that kind of behavior with any sort of anti-press incidents that have taken place over the past year in America. Right. And exactly. Like there are there are Obviously, the U.S. has a very complex relationship with Saudi Arabia, and there are a lot of complex economic and military and strategic factors informing the uh, the angle that leaders have taken on this. But it's very confusing that a similar censure of anti-press sentiment was not seen from government leaders uh in the wake of the Capitol Gazette shooting, in the wake of other attacks on reporters across America. Mm. I mean, I, I've long thought that we're not going to get anywhere on this question by um, saying that people need to care about the press as an institution. I think wh- where we're going to get somewhere is by, is by focusing on our work. In other words, mm. like, do you want somebody focused on, do, do you care that somebody's writing about your kid's school board? or that's trying to hold people to account on, at the city council, or is like calling out bad factories that are dumping junk into your water. That's where the connection is going to be made. I think this like 
very sort of airy stuff about like, oh, the press is important in general doesn't resonate. I think you really have to bring it down to how it affects people's lives. You have to boil it down. You're right about that. It's got to be tangible, too. It's got to feel real and tangible within your own community for you to care. Right. Right. And I mean, Amanda wrote about um, these reporters in California during the fires and and this local newspaper that was that was right, you know, that that was had part of its coverage area completely destroyed. But I mean, that was a good example of like, that's the, that's the power of local news where you're, I mean, it, it, it's not an exaggeration to say that those reporters were helping save people's lives by the information that they were giving. So that's the kind of information that I think will make a difference. Absolutely. So um, the year plodded on <laughs> and then, um, it seems like the 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 other major theme that that is worth touching on is just the incredible partisan nature of not only of the media itself, but of how it's seen by where you have the same facts um, are seen completely differently depending on which side of the partisan divide you're on. And and it seemed to me that the best example of this was the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, which happened in September. Um, where and it, it was a great kind of X-ray of all a lot of these issues because you had you had that the kind of partisanship and how the same set of facts were received depending on which side you were on. You also had though some interesting decisions made by news organizations about how to pursue the story, whether you what you know whether you get people on the record or off the record, or whether you sort of push stuff out quickly to take advantage of the news of the hearings, or whether you wait and do it more thoughtfully. Um, so, Andy, you sort of studied this moment. Um, what do you think are the, are, the, are the big lessons that we can learn from that? Yeah, so you said, what are the big lessons? What are the takeaways? Yeah. So I think that there were already a lot of questions throughout the year, especially amid the rest of the Russia investigation, about how journalists do our job and what it means to be anonymous or what it means to be off the record and how we verify accounts of sources. Um, and I think that... Uh, at least on the right, these questions became the premise for uh, further distrust in the media. Um, and I think that a lot of how the Brett Kavanaugh nomination played out and how a lot about how the press handled certain stories uh, further kind of played into that partisan divide where the press gathered facts aggressively on the Brett Kavanaugh nomination but was seen as part of a, uh, was seen as being in cahoots with Democrats as a part of a partisan takedown. And then we had this case with the New Yorker. Well, so, right. It would be one thing if it was Christine Blasey Ford's allegations on their own. But there were three major sets of allegations. One from a woman named uh, Deborah Ramirez, who was, uh, a story was written about her allegations against Kavanaugh from their time at Yale uh, in the New Yorker, written by uh, Ronan Farrow and Jane Mayer. Uh, And another set of allegations brought forward by uh, Michael Avenatti, the lawyer who represented Stormy Daniels, uh, and who throughout the year proved a fairly canny user of the press. So the one, the, Aven- the Avenatti-fueled allegations sort of dis- just evaporated. Um, the, um, they were fairly extreme in nature, and right. that kind of played into, uh, the, it, again, that kind of played into the press seeming in cahoots with kind of Democratic operatives because... His allegations were broadly echoed throughout the press, but then ultimately proved possibly spurious. Uh, whereas, well, I, by the way, I remember watching Rachel Maddow during that period, and she he went on and teased 
the fact that he was going to have this, and, and it was Lawrence O'Donnell, actually, maybe at, at MSNBC, teased it, was like let on the air forever to talk about this amazing thing that was going to drop, and then and then it didn't really. And it was I, I just thought it was like um, they should have exercised a lot more judgment about letting this guy on the air to kind of talk about what may or may not be coming. And it kind of seemed like a trap that the press had set for itself because there, there, there was a perception uh, across the right side of the political spectrum and in a lot of right wing press. Uh, again, the, the press, the, the mainstream media, or as Margaret Sullivan says, the fact based media or reality based media seemed to be salivating to find something against Kavanaugh. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't perceivably just partisan interest that drove the press. It was a desire to fill a an accountability void that didn't seem to exist uh, within the government. Yeah. Uh, because there were these allegations made, because it did not appear that they were being taken particularly seriously by um, by government leaders, the press had to kind of step in to fill this role and had to certainly rush against time uh, heading up to the, the Kavanaugh hearing. Right, which is why the New Yorker ran that story which a lot of people thought was not quite ready for prime time. But I think this issue that you just raised, which is that the press feels like it is the accountability engine here, um, I think I think that that's right. And I think that's why and I think that is that's why there is this incredible urgency to a lot of this coverage and even sometimes kind of shrillness because there's the, one there's frustration that like nobody's going to do anything if we don't do this. And ultimately, um Kevin, I was sworn in as the next Supreme Court justice. So that raises an interesting question, especially for young journalists like yourselves. I do not count myself in that category. Um, how, you know, how much does journalism matter? And how much and how much do you care about the outcome, especially at a moment like this where you write, people write stories that are important um, and they either they either don't seem to land with much impact or a section of the population actually tries to discredit them and say and and use sort of propaganda to say they're not what they are or they don't make any difference or and d- does that affect your um your enthusiasm about doing a job like this or do you think that do you see it as the other as the opposite where that's exactly why it's more important than ever. I'm going to start with you. I think I have my good this, days and bad days. This is like the happy ending to this um, podcast. <laughs> I'm, I'm using and to the year. <laughs> and to the year. Yeah. No, I have my good days and bad days, but I think it's important to just, I mean, it's it's hard to really always try and find out what sort of an impact your piece could have or possibly did. So I think at a stage like this, the way I keep tell myself is just keep going, do what you know, and do it to your best, and then just leave it. Because, I mean, my, my latest piece of reporting is on the threats to press in Bangladesh. There's an elections coming up at the end of this year, and just by talking to the people and having all those accounts in, I'm not really sure if anything at all would change for the local journalists who are there, but it's about having their voice out in the media and the world for people to read and know and understand how journalists are so vulnerable and every day they are facing lots of risks to get the story out. Andy? I think that we're in the wrong place if we're we're 
holding ourselves to a standard of our, our reporting necessarily having to have a material impact on an outcome. I think that we need to trust our readers and trust our audience uh, to take the information that we give them and to crunch it themselves and to allow it to inform their uh, opinions and their approach to the world. Um, in the case of the Kavanaugh hearing, where he is ultimately sworn in, um, a lot of the uh, criticisms of the press in the Kavanaugh case um, were in part warranted, but uh, I think, and in, 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 in some cases, the press didn't always show its best face. Uh, but I think that the press also showed why it's valuable and kind of uh, at least having the facts out there and on the record. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though he was confirmed, that's not to say that the, that the reporting was in vain or that it's not valuable to have the facts out there and on the record. For me, I would say, as I watched the Kavanaugh hearings, so I was really struck by um, the effect that the story filtering through the Washington Post had on people's reaction and, um, and on how partisan it was. I really saw that play a role, and I heard powerful interviews with, you know, Trump rally goers um, that week, uh, criticizing someone who was, I mean, let's face it, Blasey Ford was an incredibly believable, um, rational, relatable witness. Um, Her story rang true. Her honesty about the gaps in her memory rang true for me. But because in part, this story came through a paper like the Washington Post. You know, other American women felt okay criticizing the clothes she'd worn that day or mm. whatever it was. And so for me, my my takeaway in part was caution um, and being sure to be granular in my reporting moving forward. Um, when I reported on the Reuters picture at the border of the mother and her two toddler children. It turned out they were twins. Um, During the tear gas attack, um, I was contacted after by some sources I have whose political beliefs lie on the far right to ask about the photographer's motivations and um, about how believable this image should how how believable they should see it as, and um, I I could say with complete uh, peace of mind that there was no ulterior motive. This guy had followed the migrants across the river. Um, a small group of them had turned in one direction. That was interesting to him that they were separating from the rest of the group, and he followed them. And this is what he witnessed. Mm. So that kind of granular assurance was my takeaway. And did they, were they sold on your argument? Yeah. Well, and to this point about impact, this week we had news that the Trump Foundation is closing. Um, And what's interesting about that in terms of this conversation is that it's been now about a year and a half since David Farenthold of the Washington Post started reporting about the misdealings of that of, of that foundation. In fact, he won a Pulitzer for 2017 um, for that reporting. And here we are near the end of 2018. So 
history moves slowly, um, but that story clearly had an impact. It was just a lot later. Well, and let's and let's give the press credit where it's due with respect to the Trump administration and other cases. We also saw this past week the resignation of Ryan Zink. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have seen the kind of ouster of many Trump cabinet officials, specifically as a result of reporting with respect to their misdeeds or their uh, largesse within their positions. Right. So, um, so that's a good that's a good note to end on. Um, we wish all of you a uh, prosperous um, end of 2018 and and New Year in 2019. We'll be back uh, the first week of January with a new um, edition of The Kicker. In the meantime, you can stay up with CJR um, at CJR.org or uh, via social media or our email or on our new engagement platform, Galley. See you there and see you next year.